Well, we are less than two weeks away from Christmas Day, and I was thinking this week how, how much Christmas time is often chock full of various surprises, sometimes big, sometimes small, sometimes good, sometimes not as good. Presents that you didn't know that you would receive, things that you didn't know you needed, perhaps Cousin Eddie surprising everyone with a visit from out of town, or maybe you discover a new Christmas album that you never knew about, or you discover profundity, theological profundity in familiar Christmas songs that you've sung since you were a boy or a girl. Or perhaps an old familiar passage of Scripture comes alive to you in a new and fresh way as you encounter it again in the days leading up to Christmas. You've read it a dozen times or more before, but something new is discovered. Perhaps you've been pointing the camera lens of attention on the wrong spot. And and now with some adjustment as you read these words, the story comes alive to you with fresh wonder and awe. I remember a few years ago having that experience with the story of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1. The family of Elizabeth and Zechariah and their son John are sort of forgotten heroes of Christmas. And their part in the Christmas story is actually wonderfully rich. Well, I hope that you might have a similar experience today as we turn to the second half of Matthew 1, where the coming of the Lord Jesus is told through the lens of Joseph. Luke tells the story through the lens of Mary. Matthew tells the story through the lens of Joseph. And Joseph, I think, is an overlooked hero of Christmas. Just think of our Christmas songs. We have more songs about wise men, shepherds, and even the star than we do Joseph. Of course, Jesus is the only proper focal point. He's the centerpiece of Christmas. He's the Christ of Christmas, of course. But the story of his arrival, the story of his birth, is really given to us in several stories. Different scenes, different characters, different perspectives. And together they provide the full picture of the birth of Christ, but we should take each of them on their own terms. And when we do, we may see a familiar passage come alive in a surprising and fresh way. In fact, it's actually Joseph's own experience of surprise and wrestling and discovery and resolve that we should give careful attention to today. The story at the end of Matthew 1 is dramatic. It is profound. It is a model for how we should encounter and interact with and respond to the news of Christ's arrival. So let's read it. Let's read about Joseph's role in Christmas 
Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her away to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, there are four parts to this story, and rather neatly, there are two verses to each part, and these four parts really follow the, the typical plot arc of any story. So we really should, even if we're familiar with this story, we should aim to feel the drama, the suspense even, and to notice the conflict and the climax and the resolution that takes place. First, there is a scandalous situation. That's the first of four parts. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That is a scandalous situation. But to understand fully how it is scandalous, we've got to get into the weeds of what's going on here a bit. Because Matthew's first readers would have understood and appreciated what was going on by these words in a way that are a little foreign to us. Mary was betrothed, it says, to her husband. But that doesn't mean engaged as we think of it today. It's something much more serious than that. Betrothal was much closer to marriage. It was almost just as settled, just as official, just as contractual or covenantal as we think of marriage today. Except that in this one-year period of betrothal, the couple didn't live together and they didn't sleep together. A horrible arrangement, I know. Torture, I know. But it was the typical situation. And it is within that period of time, before they came together, that Mary, verse 18, was found to be with child. Pregnant. Do you see the scandal in the making? Do you see the dilemma because many of us are already familiar with the rest of the story, we can easily miss the angst, the disappointment, the shame, 
the humiliation that is all wrapped up in what Joseph must have assumed was taking place. Joseph had every right to assume that Mary, his betrothed, had been unfaithful to him, had gotten pregnant by another man, and to make matters worse, she insisted she hadn't been with another man. In fact, God did this to her, so she said, and in her womb was the long-awaited Messiah. She knows this because an angel told her, so she said. Joseph wouldn't have been anticipating a virgin birth of the Messiah. A virgin birth was not on his or really anyone's radar in these days. We'll come back to that later on. He was a just man, as the text says. Yes, he was a just man, and he would have assumed that his betrothed had been unfaithful to him, gotten pregnant, and lied about it. So what to do? He had a few options. Number one, in theory, he could have gone through with the marriage anyway. And I say in theory because it would have been unthinkable and unheard of in those days. Or secondly, he could have essentially taken her to court to have a public divorce. That option would exonerate him. It would actually prove publicly that he did nothing wrong and he had every right to divorce her. Of course, it would also leave her vulnerable to judicial punishment, even stoning. And then there was a third option. He could end the relationship quietly, discreetly, get a certificate of divorce, but that would be without public exoneration. And that's what he did. He did the third category. Verse 19, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Unwilling to punish her, unwilling to shame her. He took a measure of her shame onto himself. He, no doubt, would suffer for this so that she would suffer a little less than she otherwise would. It's quite a noble thing. He's quite a guy. He's a just and righteous man indeed. And yet, to this point in the story, this is quite a sad story. A marriage that might have been. Confusion about what really happened. Hurt, shame, disappointment, a broken relationship, a single mother-to-be, not to mention the public scorn, the gossip, the whispers, the rumors about what really happened aimed at both of them. So you can imagine Joseph, having made his decision, that third option, he would still, that night, wrestle to fall asleep. 
You can imagine him replaying all this. His head reeling, his, his heart aching, likely praying. And all that is captured in verse 20. But as he considered these things, dramatic pause for us, the reader, because he didn't just consider these things in a second or two and go on as we do as we read it. He considered these things. That took a while. But then there's a second movement. An angelic visitation. An angelic visitation. And we'll park here under this point the longest, just so you know. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and spoke. At this fateful moment, Joseph got a word from on high. He got a word of assurance from an angelic messenger. Now for us, we shouldn't expect or demand to get a special word from God whenever we think we need it. But we shouldn't be surprised when we find in Scripture that God sometimes supernaturally speaks, reveals, guides and especially at crucial moments in his plan of redemption. And the arrival of the Messiah was the most crucial of them all. It's as important as it gets. And so no surprise that angels are quite busy in these days with heavenly messages to a handful of integral people to ensure that they fully grasp the significance, the weight, the meaning of what's happening. And so an angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke 1 and told him his son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And an angel came to Mary in the same chapter and said in her womb was the promised one. And angels found those shepherds in Luke 2 and told them to go look for the baby. And here in Matthew 1, Joseph gets a word from on high at a crucial moment. And notice how, for as succinct as it is, how thorough and important it is. There's an action that Joseph should take. There's a reason why he should take that action. And then there's a stated significance of it all. There's an action to take. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This points to the challenge, the obvious challenge, the social challenge, the emotional challenge of taking Mary as his wife. It would not be an easy thing to do even after an angel tells you to do it. Fear could get in the way. Fear would need to be overcome in order to do what was right. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The reason for taking that action? Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What Mary told you is true. It's true. And so here is the explicit heavenly statement of what we call the virgin birth. 
It's probably more accurately called the virgin conception. All births are the same. This birth of Jesus was no miraculous birth as far as we know, but the conception sure was. We might ask, how did this happen? And we'll be left wondering. We simply know that it was miraculous. C.S. Lewis used to tell the story of the time in his Oxford study when an unbelieving friend dropped by for a visit. And about that same time, a college choir formed outside and began singing Christmas carols, one of which touched upon the virgin birth. And so Lewis's friend said something like, isn't it good that we now know better? And Lewis said, what do you mean? His friend said, we of course now know that it's impossible for a child to be born of a virgin. And Lewis replied, well, don't you think they knew that back then in Jesus' time? (laughs) Isn't that exactly the point? That it's remarkable and a shocking thing that a baby would be born of a virgin? No, we're not told how. We're simply told that it was by means of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinitarian God moved upon this empty womb to create life. Not totally unlike the Spirit who once moved upon the waters of the deep at creation. That same Spirit. And notice the significance and purpose of all that's happening. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves, Yahshua. For he will save his people from their sins. This is why he came. This is why the virgin birth. This is why Christmas. To save a people from From what? What would you say next if you didn't know? To save a people from, they might have said back then, Roman tyranny. They might have said back then, from unfair pagan taxation. We might say today, to save us from low self-esteem or bad education or poverty. He didn't come to save us from any of those things, even though some of them are great harm and have evil in them. He didn't come, brothers and sisters, to save us from the Republicans or the Democrats. He didn't come to save us from Joe Biden or Donald Trump. He came to save us from our sins. That's what we need most. That's the greatest problem in this world. We need saving from our sins. Remember that story in Mark chapter 2 where a paralyzed man, he had kind friends who brought this man, this paralyzed man to Jesus. And his friends, because the the house was so crowded where Jesus was, his friends lowered the paralyzed man down through the roof so that he might get to Jesus. And the hope of the paralyzed man and his friends was that Jesus would 
Heal him. Heal him of his paralysis. Jesus instead speaks these surprising words. Son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, Jesus goes on to heal the man, but he first forgives the man so that we would know that he has the power to forgive and so that we would know what our greatest need is. It's not physical. It's spiritual. It's not out there. It's in here. Notice from this powerful line from the the angel, he will save his people from their sins. Notice that he will. It's sure. It's not a hope to. He will accomplish it as only he could. Notice he will save. So he didn't come to bring advice. He didn't come to reveal some higher form of living. He didn't come to help us. He didn't come to give us a boost so that we would find a higher power. He came to save. And how will he save? Well, you have to read on in Matthew to find out. You could read on and find in Matthew 20, verse 28, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, a payment. He died in the place of sinners, bearing their guilt. It's what he said in the upper room in Matthew 26 as he shared with his disciples the cup. He said, this is my blood. My blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's how he'll do it. The cross. The cross is how he'll save his people from their sins by taking their guilt and punishment and dying in their place. And that's where the story that Matthew's laying out is headed, the cross and resurrection. But the seedlings of it are right here, right at the beginning. In a name, Jesus, God saves. In a mission statement, he will save his people from their sins. And in the significance of the virgin birth itself. So before moving to this next point, let me just give you four reasons for the virgin birth. Let me just pile these up into one nice, neat section here so that we understand that the virgin birth not only was real, but it was essential. Number one, it is a telling indication of Jesus' divinity and his humanity, his two natures. The Bible insists that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. And had he never been born of a woman, he would not be fully human. But had he been born of two humans, how could he be fully God? Secondly, and related to number one, the virgin birth points to his sinlessness. This is how he was sinless. He wasn't born of two sinners like the rest of us. Third, the virgin birth is a window into how God saves. How he saves. He initiates. He comes out of nowhere. He intrudes. He invades. He comes to us. We can't build ourselves up to him. 
And so if you're not a Christian and you're skeptical about this idea of a virgin birth, let me just ask you this. Do you think you could be saved by something more natural? You think you could be saved by something more normal? Do you think you could be saved by something less radical and less miraculous than this? This is what it took. A God-man. We need a God-man savior. 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews 2, verse 17. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he would be a propitiation for our sins. And now a fourth reason for the virgin birth. It is a sign. It's a sign that he was the Messiah. It was actually predicted somewhat long ago. Which leads to our third point now, not my four reasons, but now back to the main outline, a prophetic prediction. Verse 22 and 23, we have a prophetic prediction, and it's no longer the angel speaking to Joseph, but it's Matthew adding explanation for us, the readers. And he points us back to Isaiah 7, verse 14. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by that prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds his interpretation or translation of Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, especially when it says something like, this was to fulfill what was spoken of long ago, it's always an interesting exercise to go back to the quotation in its original context and to poke around a little bit and see what we find. And so we should do that here. What's going on in Isaiah 7 that leads the Old Testament prophet to say what he said in verse 14 of Isaiah 7? And why does Matthew quote it? Well, if you want to turn to Isaiah 7, I'll just paraphrase some things. I'll piece together and summarize a story that we find there. It's all about King Ahaz, king of Jerusalem in those days. He was not a godly king. Ahaz, in those days, was facing a new military threat. In fact, a dual threat as two nations combined to oppose him. So Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz to tell him this. Do not fear. Because God will thwart the efforts of your enemies. Isaiah also says that Ahaz should ask the Lord for a sign so that you'll know it's going to happen. It's not always a good idea to ask the Lord for a sign. That often gets rebuked. But when the prophet of God tells you you should ask the Lord for a sign, you should take him up on it. Ahaz doesn't. He's not interested in the help He's not interested in a sign. Isaiah says, you're going to get one anyway. The Lord himself will give you a sign, is Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. 
The passage goes on to assure King Ahaz that before this miracle-born son is even a toddler, before he's on solid food, the enemies will be overthrown. Then in chapter 8 of Isaiah, the miraculous son is born. It's actually Isaiah's son. That son goes by the name Mahar Shalal Hash Baz. Chapter 8, verse 1, quite a mouthful. But he also goes by the name, do you know? Emmanuel. Chapter 8, verse 8. Emmanuel is his name. He's the one. He's the sign. He was born, apparently, of a virgin. And then chapter 8, verse 10 of Isaiah is just emphatic. The enemies will take counsel together, but it'll come to nothing. It will not stand, for God is with us. I mean, literally, it's saying, it will not stand for Emmanuel. The sign, it's proof. So Matthew, explaining to us the virgin birth, sees a pattern put down long ago in the days of Isaiah and rightly concludes that the birth of Christ epitomizes and elevates and fulfills the language of Isaiah 7.14. Jesus is the ultimate virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us. So you can see that the sign of the virgin-born Emmanuel really is fulfilled on two levels. They may not have seen that back then, but we can today. There's a twofold fulfillment. One in the days of King Ahaz, another in the days of Jesus who was born to Mary. No one saw the virgin birth coming. In Isaiah's day, it would have been understandable to think that the sign of the virgin birth, the birth of Emmanuel, served its purposes in those days. And that's why we can understand that Joseph would have, at least before the angelic explanation, he would have every reason to have assumed that Mary was unfaithful and was lying. No one saw the virgin birth coming. The average Jew in the first century AD wasn't looking for a virgin birth. And of course, Greeks in those days would never have conceived of any of the gods taking on a human body. And so skeptics of Christianity today who argue that the virgin birth was an invention of Christians to make their savior have a more significant birth overlooked the fact that it would have been a scandalous idea both to Jews and to Greeks. Just look at Mary's reaction in Luke 1 where she says, how can this be? And Luke tells us she was perplexed. And as for Joseph, when he first hears of the news, via Mary at least, he doesn't believe it and he assumes the best course of action is divorce. So it may be easier to believe in the miraculous than to be suspicious of a conspiracy. But the point of it all, the point of the virgin birth, the point of the incarnation is God with us. That's what Christmas is all about. 
God came to us as one of us. That idea of God being with his people is found around about 118 times in the Bible. I mean, think of these familiar passages. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Or Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous, be not afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. On and on it goes. It's one of the sweetest promises in all the Bible. God's presence with us is a difference maker. And all those references of God being with his people are funneled together and taken to another level when Jesus comes. He is literally God with us. He is physically God with us. He came to us as one of us. And as Christians, we have the even further elevated reality that now that Jesus has ascended on high, he has not left us alone, but has given us his spirit. And his spirit is not just with us, like near us, alongside us, available to us. The Holy Spirit is within us. We are his temple. He's there for good. That's the down payment on us eventually getting home. And so if God is with us like this, if God is in us like this, we don't have to be afraid. Even when circumstances are darn scary. If God is with us and in us, we sure don't have to wonder if he's for us. Even when our sin makes us feel like he may not be for us right now. He is with us and for us. For it all. He is with us in our trials. He is with us in our toughest of tasks. Three times in Matthew, there's this allusion to Jesus being with his people. The beginning, the middle, and the end. We're seeing the beginning this morning. God is with us to save us. In the middle, in Matthew 18, we get the promise that God is with his church for its purity, for its tough decision-making about who should be in and who shouldn't be. In other words, church discipline. He'll be with us. And then at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, he tells his church that he'll be with them in their mission of making disciples among all the nations. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the ages. What great comfort. Of course, that's getting way ahead of our passage. Let's get back to Matthew 1 because there's still a final turn in the story. It's actually the climax of the story as Joseph awakes from sleep. Your familiarity with the rest of the story shouldn't allow you to miss 
what is in reality suspense. What will he do? Joseph has wrestled with a scandalous situation. He has been visited by an angel who gave him a powerful explanation. The angel has also given him a clear direction. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Will he? Will Joseph get behind Messiah's arrival even at great cost? Fourth, there's a beautiful conclusion. A beautiful conclusion. I don't know what else to call it. It's so multi-layered in its sweetness and beauty. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did. As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. Now you know what people are going to say, right? What a sucker. I bet she made him take her back. Where's the pants in that family? We all knew they fornicated together and came up with this Holy Spirit story. Now, at great cost, Joseph took his orders from heaven and he put his lot with Messiah for the rest of his life. What a day that was for Joseph. A day full of surprises. He experienced the surprise of Mary's news. Bad news, he thought. Having made a decision with that news, he went to bed. And to his surprise, he had an angelic dream telling him what to do and what was going on and what was at stake. And to the surprise of many, he woke up and determined to take Mary as his wife. Verse 25 tells us, not a throwaway sentence at all. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This was to fully ensure that the baby to come out was in fact the conceived miraculous baby. Mary gave birth to a son before she ever had relations with anyone, even her husband. And so Matthew 1, right at the end here, last two verses, it subtly records these significant events in the lives of Joseph and Mary. Their wedding, the first birth. Of their sons. Is there anything sweeter, more beautiful, and more special than weddings and births? Maybe only one thing the arrival of the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 25, the second half, he called his name. Jesus, God saves. He not only obeyed, it seems he got it. He understood why to obey. He got what was going on. He got who this is. Have you? Matthew wrote this because he wants you to follow 
Joseph's lead and get behind Messiah's arrival, even at great cost. No matter the cost, no matter what others say, no matter what you lose. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Romans 10 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you? Not yet? Wouldn't it be a wonderful surprise if you, who went to bed last night, disheartened, overwhelmed, restless, contemplating things, not knowing Jesus, not believing, not having his presence and his peace. What if you came in here this morning still wondering if there's hope, if there's an answer, wondering if God could be for you and with you for good, Wondering if there's something worth living for in this world that is bigger than what people think. Wouldn't it be a wonderful surprise to you, to your family and friends, maybe to us, if today, right now, you decided to put your lot with Jesus to follow Joseph's lead and believe the angel and believe the prophets and believe what I'm telling you here today and to hitch your hopes and dreams and allegiance to Jesus even at great cost. I hope you would. I pray you would. Christian, you have. You have. You've hitched yourself to Jesus even if there is great cost. Sometimes you will need to decide, Jesus or something else. Acceptance, respect, money, or Jesus. That's how we got in. We chose Jesus. And the Christian life is just we keep going that way. We just keep following Jesus. But the good news is he's with you. He's with you through it all. The ups and the downs. No matter the surprises that come, whether good or bad, he is with you. Not only with you, he's in you by his spirit. He's for you. If he is for you, who can be against you? This will see us through this life. John Wesley's last words on his deathbed. He, he gathered his family around. And, and these were his last words. Best of all, God 
is with us. Best of all, God is with us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Messiah, Savior, the one to come to save a people from their sins, and you did so on that cross, and we know so because of the resurrection. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you, triune God, that you are for us, and may that be enough for us this Christmas. Be with us as a church in our purity and be with us as disciples, Lord, in our mission to tell others about this God who dwells with sinners so marvelously. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.